Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Do you like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30 cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of Orc. Your new models are happy scraping the shit. Because you've never seen a miracle. You imagined it was you. Oh, you did. You did. We all wish it was us. That's why we believe. All the best memories are hers. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green. Verde. <laughs> Verde. I wanted to put a little pause there because I figured people might not know which Patrick you're talking about. Yes. You know, because it yes. could be it so could many. be any it could so be Patrick many. Swayze, who I guess maybe not Patrick Swayze, but Patrick Azul. <laughs> there we go, Patrick Azul. There we go, Patrick Blue, yeah. No, this is green. Patrick you got green Rojas. tonight. Rojas. How you doing, my friend? You're I'm back from the, well. the, the snowy north of California. I am back from California. I was in... Tell us who you were visiting. I was visiting our old co-host, Dan Ferlito. Um, I spent Daniele three days with Ferlito. him. Had a nice time. We went and saw the Batman. I saw it for my second time, which was fan-fucking-tastic. Better the second time than the first. Um, I agree. Like, the first time was so overwhelming there's so much going on i was just kind of like whoa 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 and then the second time i was like more entranced and more like spellbound than the first time um because i could focus a little bit more it was just simply amazing it's a sublime film so anyways yeah i had a nice time but here we are again back in the saddle to actually discuss a character from the original blade runner which is pris Sounds like, it seems, feels like it's been a long time since we actually, I know it's been a long time because we were looking at our episodes and we're like, where should we go next? And we were thinking maybe another costumes one, maybe we should. And then we realized it's been a long time since we've just done like a deep dive in the philosophy of a character in one of the, you know, canonical two movies. Because we've been talking about Black Lotus, of course. We've been talking about this new 2099 series that was announced. Mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about the comic books. And we've been talking about all, all sorts of stuff lately. But uh, the actual movies themselves have been a little bit on the back burner for the last, you know, six or seven months for us. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this a lot. And Pris is a character who has been frequently suggested, to me at least, by listeners and fr- you know friends of the show as somebody who uh, we should cover. I think partly because she – well, for one thing, she's obviously iconic as just a, a visual motif in the film. Like her – not only just the way that she looks, which we'll talk about and why that's such an – you know, her sort of punk clown thing is so evocative and is so, you know, used in contemporary fashion. We see a lot of runway fashion influenced by that look. Uh, so not only in that way, but also in uh, – she's iconic in that she is – 
such a part of the visual composition of some of the most arresting moments in the movie. Like I think about in Sebastian's apartment, you know, when she's hiding as one of the dolls, like that is to me, one of the most beautiful painterly Jordan Cronenweth cinematography moments in the entire movie, the acrobatics that she does in her fight with Deckard. Of course, you know, when Roy kisses her and when he comes in to find that she's passed, like a lot of these really visually stunning moments in the movie are tied to press. And so I think she sticks with people for that reason, but she also, I think sticks with people because she is the first real glimpse we get into the life of a pleasure model on the run and into this, you know, orphan character who is was born more directly than any of the other ones, I think, into slavery in a really literal sense. She was born uh, to, to be a, a pleasure model, but also to be, you know, military backup if necessary. So there's a really tragic birth narrative to her character too and i think that she although daryl hannah doesn't have very many lines in the film she's obviously really memorable and she's a character who sticks with people and so i think it'll be kind of fun to unpack that tonight i remember the first audition was in a small trailer on the uh, 20th century lot originally in the screenplay pris was supposed to be sort of dangling on on these uh, rings, you know, the gymnastic rings. And there wasn't any kind of gymnastic stuff incorporated into the fight. It was just taking place in a gymnasium. And so um, I had been a gymnast as a kid in school. And so I suggested to Ridley that I could do gymnastics and that maybe I could put that into the fight sequence. And so I remember he asked me to show him what gymnastics meant (laughs) and what that was. And, And so I did like a back walk over or something like that for him in the trailer and and that was it. Pris is a character I've been thinking about quite a bit in terms of Black Lotus, honestly, as I've been watching, you know, Black Lotus is, of course, uh, a show about a replicant. And we, you know, you guys, if you want to hear what our thoughts about it, which unfortunately aren't great, you can, they are there for you to listen to. Um, but I been, I've been thinking about Chris, Chris, I've been thinking about, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> I've been thinking about Pris quite a bit because her and L have some similarities, whereas L was made or created or manufactured for a certain purpose in terms of like a, a doll hunt, even though there was other things happening with her and she's got the tattoo on her back. Like, although I don't even, even know, need, I don't know why they would need to tattoo her back to make like, that was just weird. Anyways. Um, but Pris and L have some similarities. Um, but Pris obviously, at least to me is, Far and away the better character. Uh, Pris was born or made to be a pleasure model, but she's learned things. She's she's learned agency or she's she's gained agency even in her short lifespan, whereas Elle didn't kind of really do any of those things. Elle was kind of vapid and like little girl kind of like or little child like. Like that was Elle the whole time. J J like um <laughs> um L just like was like needles on a uh, or fingernails on a chalkboard for me but and I don't mean to harp on her as a character but Pris is the the bar in some ways um just in the way that and we can dis- we'll discuss this at some point Mariette and Pris also have similarities they're both pleasure models they they're both informed by some of their own agency despite how they were, what they were made to be. Um, and I've been thinking about them as replicants and as people or as whatever, because 
in light of L because L has none of their agency and none of their smarts, um, none of their just none of the intelligence that they um, that they exude. So I'm excited to kind of dive into Pris and discuss why that is. You're hitting on something important about her character, which I think is summed up in probably her most memorable line, which is when she quotes Descartes. She's talking to Jeff Sebastian. She says, I think, Sebastian, therefore I am, which is on its face, you know, the way she says it is kind of, you know, manipulative and kind of toying with him a little bit. But taken out of that context behaviorally, just in the span of who this replicant is and why she would say something like that, it's actually really profound. And it's profound in the ways the original Descartes quote is profound, right? Which is, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum. The reason it's profound is because it's basically saying that because I have the ability to think of this thing that I'm saying right now, it proves that I am an alert, aware person with agency, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So th- this idea of being able to say the thing that I'm saying means that I'm you know, a human mm-hmm. or that, or that I'm, a, you know, a, a, a soul or whatever you want to say, I think is really, uh, is really important. I think it's really integral to her character. You know, she is the second oldest of the replicants. She's about three months from her expiration, her retirement date. So she is, uh, you know, nearing the end and she, as this slave, you know, has escaped from her bonds and, and fought for freedom. And it's, it's really, uh, it's really powerful. What's interesting to me is that obviously Zora and Pris have a lot of parallels, right? And we'll mm-hmm. get more into that in a bit. Their death scenes are both really evocative mm-hmm. and powerful for me, and but in different ways. In Zora's death, I have this real sense of empathy for her, this real, which we've talked about ad nauseum, but a, a real sense of wanting her to make it through, mm-hmm. right? And wanting her to survive and wanting her to get back into the night to hide in the crowd and to get away from Deckard. With Pris, I, I it's not like I it's not like I I necessarily want her to be retired in that exchange, but I have this sense of um, removal from her for some reason, and I don't know exactly why that is. But her her death to me is poignant, not because it's Pris's death, but because it's the death of Roy's dream, you know, and and that's something that I probably need to unpack why I feel that way about her, and I think it might be because Batty is such a titanic character like he's a character who you just get so sucked into throughout the course of the movie that Pris sort of orbits him a little bit you know like a moon around a planet and so when that moon goes out of alignment you know the planet you know gets tilted off of its axis and of course then that sets into motion the final climactic confrontation of the film but i'm i i kind of i'm hoping tonight to get more of an understanding of why i feel removal from Pris a little bit as opposed to to Zora because her her death is I mean it's also you know she's spasming she's struggling it's uh it's shocking to watch you know but it for some reason doesn't feel sad to me the way Zora's does yeah her Pris's death feels like a car wreck I mean it, it almost literally is a car wreck and there's that you know the spasming it looks robotic in certain way a certain way and which lends credence a little bit to really what are what are replicants? Yes, they're biologically engineered, but we don't know if that's all they are. What else is going on in them? We don't know. We're not really sure. Um, but Pris is so interesting. There's a, a line that she says to Roy. She goes, we're stupid and we'll be killed. She has this 
understanding about who she is and who they are, that they're new to the world um, and that they don't get everything. Um, because of that, it's going to lead to their death. And in fact, it kind of did to some degree. Even with, with Batty, what led Batty to his death was his his expiration date more than it was someone killing him. He, you know, he could have killed Deckard, and of course he did not, and he then expired himself. Um, and but to your point about her death, what I find interesting is I really feel like Pris is relatable. Um, I really feel like she, you can, you can access her as a character. Um, and the, the want to live. I mean, she's also manipulating JF Sebastian. She's playing a role. She can do it. Well, the damsel in distress, she's a pleasure model. She knows what to do. Um, she knows how to kind of gussy herself up to look beautiful for JF Sebastian. But there's, of course, other things happening. But even still, the sense in her to the, the value of her own life. How does she, you know, and they're the last two. I mean, aside from Rachel, they're the last two who can hopefully find a way to live longer. Of course, by the time she sees Batty again, it's too late. Like, there's no end for them. But I, I do feel sympathy about her death. It is a train wreck. It's a car wreck. But I feel sympathy just because you're looking at this thing die this horrible death and all she was doing was defending her life. That's all she was doing. I think I'm, I'm, I'm as you're talking, trying to think about some of the reasons why I feel differently about her. I think that it could be because of that manipulation that you're talking about and being aware of it, right? We're, we're introduced to her as like a creature of the street, right? Like we were introduced to her as this like urchin seeking shelter in, in the garbage outside of the building, right? So like, which happens to be Sebastian's building, of course. So our introduction to her is very sympathetic. We f really feel for her. She seems homeless. She seems distraught. She seems lost. She seems like she's, you know, rudderless. And then as she ingratiates herself with Sebastian and is able to, you know, gain access into his apartment, and then we see her set the trap for Deckard, and we see all these things happening, you know, she's cunning in a way that Zora isn't. And I think that might be part of what it is. Zora, of course, was, um, you know, she killed people. She was part of this murder squad, right, before she, you know, came to, to Earth. And uh, it, there's a sense of, like, she's running from that past into some future for, for me with Zora. Like she's working, you know, she's got this job at Taffy's bar. She's trying to create a new life. She's, yeah. she's trying to create a new life. And that life is very precious to her because it's such a contradiction to the life that she ran away from. Like she didn't, she was born a murderer and she chose to become a dancer. She chose to like, you know, hide in plain sight with Pris because she's so skilled at manipulating and because she's, uh, I don't know. There's there's something about her arc to me that feels more villainous. I, I guess hmm. you know if if you look in which is which is interesting because Batty to me has never felt villainous. But there's something almost villainous to me about Chris. If you look at like character listings, for example, which I was just checking actually because I was curious to see like how they're credited. Um, they're you know, both Zora and Pris are noted as being antagonists in the film, right? Like they're they're specifically in terms of cinema speak, they are counter to Deckard as the antagonist to his protagonist as is Batty, which is crazy, but that that's true. I mean, most people watching the movie for the first time are watching it as these murderous, you know, humanoids are killing people and they're on the run. And Deckard is, you know, he's, he's Han Solo. Like he's, he's going to, you know, catch them. 
And then as you watch the film again, of course, those things kind of switched. But Pris remains to me, and I think it's because of that manipulation that she keeps doing in this slightly darker space, which I think is really interesting. And it's honestly part of why I like her character so much. So I'm not saying this as some sort of like an attack on her. I'm saying it actually as I think she's more interesting because of that. Because when she does things that are a little more kind of mustache twirly villain in the film, like when she when her eyes, you know, flutter and she does all that scary shit with the makeup, you know, when she tries to break his neck, all of these things that are kind of f- freaky, they really ring true as frightening to me. And it's in the context of a movie where most of the replicants, you know, most of their screen time is not overtly frightening. You know, most of the time they're kind of chasing down leads or they're trying to get, you know, trying to hide out or they're trying to run you know, we have obviously Leon being threatening, but but it, to, to me, there's there's something different about her. I'll shut up. That's a long point. No, I, I agree with you. But I think the piece that we might be missing here is we've met J.F. Sebastian and he's the kindest soul that you could imagine. Just a right. kind, kind man. Um, and he's there. He's the innocent involved. He inadvertently, while also advertently, is ensnared in this plan. To, and he is unfortunately the one they need to use to get to Tyrell. And before he, JF Sebastian gets killed, you hear Roy Batty said, I'm sorry, Sebastian. He knows it's tough. Um, and so I think watching Pris manipulate JF, I think we're feeling for him. I think that's what's happening as we're like, oh, she's not really, she's not being honest with him. She's seducing him a little bit in a really kind of under underhanded way just to bring him in a little bit to earn his trust then to introduce Batty and to use, they're using him. And that's always dirty. It's always a gross thing to feel. And it's weirder because we have replicants, but what they're doing is they're acting like people. They're using other people for their means, but they've been, they don't know any better. They've been pushed to this. Uh, Pris has been manufactured to seduce people. And I feel like that's where our uncomfortability with her lies is she's inadvertently responsible for the death of J.F. Sebastian, who is probably, aside from Rachel, one of the most innocent people in the film. And uh, J.F. Sebastian has you, 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 his heart beats inside us when, when we see him, when we hear him talk, when he's like, you're beautiful, you know, like, hey, he's my friends. And even there's a moment when Pris is being taken up to his, his – um, apartment and he opens the door and his toys come out and um pris kind of looks around and she, you can see in her face that she has empathy for him she understands that he he values them as life in his own way which makes what they're doing a little bit diabolical even though oftentimes when you're sometimes when you do the right thing you also blood is spilled even though even in the in the quest to do the right thing. And I'm not saying it should be, but sometimes it is. And unfortunately, J.F. Sebastian was the blood that had to be spilled. And his blood is on the hands of Pris and Roy. And so that makes our, our ease with her t- turn into a little bit of unease. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I don't know why I hadn't even considered that. Because, you know, Zora doesn't have a Sebastian to be contending with. But Jeff Sebastian is like the, is the, like you said, the beating heart of that whole stretch of the movie. And in, it's, it's interesting because we do see her have some degree of 
connection to him and some degree of mm-hmm. sympathy for his plight. Mm-hmm. And she still chooses to manipulate him anyway, which is, you know, understandable because she's about to die. But it also like there's there's this, um, you know, we kind of sense in her that she's weaponizing her ability to manipulate him regardless of whether or not she understands how lonely he is. Mm-hmm. And the the yeah, when, when he says she's beautiful, like those lines are really heartbreaking mm-hmm. to me. Because you know he's just been waiting. I mean, obviously he's been waiting for human connection for such a long time, um, and this is as close as he's come to getting that. You know, in a real way, like he has friends, he has roommates, he has these, you know, the kind of freaky people-ish things that are with him, but they're a lot more human than the toys that he's creating, and they feel more alive to him and more complex to him. And he's really there's a sense of of uh, of an opening up for him in that part of the movie and I think that's that's a, a large reason why it's so tragic feeling I also, uh, I guess I'm just going to drop this here because I'm not really sure where else to do it. If you read the K.W. Jeter novels, the, you know, Blade Runner 2, Edge of Human, the Edge of Human being like the first one, she's a character in that. And in those novels, which have no relation to the actual films or to the, the book, so take it with a grain of salt. She's a human, an insane human woman who has convinced herself that she's a replicant. So that's a little bit of like an interesting background into this other imagining of her, which obviously feels off to me. But I, I do want to, we got a, a listener uh, email recently from Lee Davies, who was, uh, he says, I was listening to your old podcast on the graphic novels, blah, blah, blah. He just bought the complete collection. Good call. And he was surprised to hear the guest say at the end of episode 96 that he dismissed the novels. And, uh, and he said that's probably why we haven't reviewed the novels on a podcast yet. And he's just started reading them, and he thinks that they're a very good read. So I, I got to say, to to my mind, Lee Davies, the novels aren't necessarily terrible. It's just they're so disconnected from the from the film. But we have talked about doing episodes on those in the past. And maybe if you, Mr. Davies, uh, feel like you you know have a good understanding of them, maybe you can even come on and, and join us. Anyway, I'm bringing that up to say that Pris – as a character exists also outside of the film in a lot of contexts, right? She's in the novel. She's in the comic book, the Marvel comic book. She's in uh, tons and tons and tons of fan art. She's a really widely reproduced image from the film. So there's something about her that sticks for people, I think. And she's also the, she's a, a deadly Barbie. I mean, if you know or are familiar with Daryl Hannah, which I was, I remember the first film I saw with Daryl Hannah was, of course, Splash with Tom Hanks and John Candy and Eugene Levy came out in like 1983 or 82 or something like that. And Daryl Hannah plays a mermaid um, directed by Ron Howard. Um, and so she's very tall. She's blonde. She's beautiful. She looks like a Barbie. And, and I think they utilize that for this where she is this pleasure model. They've kind of played into her looks, but she's that's kind of where it stops because she's deadly as well. Um, and I like that they did this and I like what I like about Daryl Hannah or the character of Pris is that she's not a damsel in distress. Um, she can take care of herself again. I don't mean to continue to pivot back to black Lotus, but, um, I just couldn't stand how helpless 
Elle was compared to these other amazing female replicants we've gotten in the movies and in the comics. No one else is as, as vapid as Elle, unfortunately. Um, so it actually makes me appreciate Pris even more. Um, and even people like Mariette, whom we'll cover eventually, or maybe we'll cover Mariette and the replicants of 2049. Um, or like the, the you know, the, the replicants kind of out of sight because Mariette has a very small role. Um, but Pris in the short time she was alive and they came back to earth had agency. She didn't, she didn't need anyone's help. She was there. She was on a mission. She had something to do and she did it. And she didn't, when Deckard came in, she didn't, you know, run away from him scared. Um, she fought him. Um, and she of course lost her life in a very, and, and which is, I, it's odd too. Like, so she loses her life. She gets killed. She's fighting Deckard with her hands and her legs. Like, she's very physical because that's all she can do. Deckard then cheats and shoots her, um, which I think is strange. It's like that scene in Indiana Jones, the first one, where the guy takes out the sword and um, Indiana Jones just goes and kills her. That's essentially essentially what he does to Pris. Um, But Pris had the upper hand with him for a while. But I just like that Pris at no time, and maybe... I don't know if she just didn't learn it. She was at no time like too scared to confront Deckard. She just did it. She just ran up to him and did her somersaults and pinned him and held his head. And she was close to killing him. And then she doesn't. Um, And I, that, that takes some bravery and maybe she doesn't know what brave is. Maybe it's just instinctual for her. And I also think the Pris we're meeting at this point especially when Deckard is on the scene is the Pris who is the rabid dog backed into a corner where what do they do? They get even worse. And Pris was backed into a corner fending for her life at the last moments of her life. And that's what we see. Going back to Black Lowe's for a moment, we see her fighting in the most reminiscent style of Elle's fighting style. I mean, that's the only kind of parallel we have to that sort of martial art, balletic mm-hmm. gymnastic fighting style in the, mm-hmm. in the films. And, uh, and I think it works really well. And it also, again, it, it does drive home this idea that I brought up, I think when we were talking about Black Lotus, that Deckard is is really not ever shown to be like particularly good at his job mm-hmm. in the way, you know, we see uh, – who's the Blade Runner that was in the video game who's also in Black Lotus? What's his name? Uh, Marlo. Marlo, yeah. Like Mar- Marlo is what, you know, I think of when I think – because Blade Runners are supposed to be feared. Like they're supposed to be these revered, iconic Batman-like figures, right, looming in the shadows and like you know having incredible fighting skills and the Deckard that we see is like very sluggish I mean he gets the crap kicked out of him throughout much of the movie and I mean to see Chris literally he's he's lazy yeah but but also I don't even think it's because he's lazy I think it's because he's incapable I Mm -hmm. I feel like he's just like he can't compete with with her abilities she's also class A endurance which is the same as Zora and and I think Batty also which means that she's like you know very strong superhuman endurance Um, she's you know, an incredible fighter, even though she was born for, for pleasure. So like getting to see her do those gymnastic moves is really, really cool. Also the way I, I want to talk for a moment, something that I like about her and that I've always loved about her character is that she 
creates the closest thing to a horror atmosphere that we get in yes. Blade Runner, right? Which and, and that is something that has never lost its effect on me. When I'm watching the film, it doesn't matter what edition I'm watching or what age I am when I see it, I still get creeped out by a lot of what she does in the back half of the film. And I love that. I love that it gives Ridley a chance to re-engage with some of the things that he did so well in Alien, like the, the ways that, that he shoots her, the ways in which she slinks, across, just like doing her like little flip and the little pirouette thing in the background yes. not pure with that little move that she does in the background the, silently. Uh, what is this, uh, so, a somersault it's not a somersault it's a cartwheel is it a cartwheel yeah, yeah. this is a, neither jamie nor i are professional gymnasts this might be <laughs> news to people but i'm sure we're gonna get some angry mail whatever the fucking move is that she does it's very very frightening uh when she has the veil on and she's yes. hiding like those images are very scary to me and um her death is very scary, too. And I, I, I really love that. And it also comes on the heels of what is the most overtly horrific thing in the film, which is Roy killing Tyrell, which, you know, I remember being a kid and closing my eyes for that part. And still, to this day, when I watch it, I have this real revulsion, this real sense of like, it's this tragic, very gory death that really hits hard. And, you know, her death comes shortly thereafter. But this, there's this whole sandwich of kind of horror iconography going on in her stretch of the movie. And a lot of that, I think, is Daryl Hannah. I think she does a wonderful job of – I mean, she communicates a lot without saying very much. Her dialogue could probably fit on, you know, a note card or something in this movie. She doesn't say very much. But she communicates an, an enormous amount through the way she moves, through the looks that she gives. She's very sophisticated in this movie. And it's impressive considering she really was in the beginning of her career. She she telegraphed she some amazing stuff. Yeah, she was really, really young. She she does an amazing amount with very little to overtly work with. And I think um, that's something that has been a little bit lost because she's become so iconic as just this visual motif. People forget that she doesn't say very much in this movie. But she communicates a, a huge amount. And just briefly to that end, I'll say, I think part of why she's a complicated character to talk about is and, and why she makes me feel sometimes that sense of like revulsion is because she manipulates us very skillfully too, which I know I'm teeing up a joy conversation for you right now. So you can go ahead and, you know, if you want, talk about that too. But I think she she knows what she's doing and we don't know it when we're watching it. So we really feel for her a lot <laughs> through a lot of the movie because we feel this sense of like, oh, she's this, you know, lost soul. She's this like, you know, innocent person. And then we realize that she's not. And then we're like, oh, fuck, I got manipulated too. And then we realize what's going to happen to Sebastian. It all kind of comes together in this tidal wave. It's really, really sophisticated storytelling. Yeah, it is. Um, what I love about Pris is her archetype, her aesthetic is is as much of a character as she is. Like her sitting in that veil in that big room with all of his toys and figures and whatever robots that he made. I don't know what those little people are, if they're physical, if they're mechanical, or if they're a combination of both. I don't really know. Um, but she fits in that, that aesthetic beautifully. Um, but she's also terrifying. She also reminds me of the nun too, with the, just the eyes and, um, but her presence alone creates its own energy just her presence, um, not even why she's there or what she's doing there, just her sitting there. Um, she's this doll that moves. She's this doll that's been given life. And I was thinking about her death scene, and I think why her death scene is so horrific is because clearly we're not killing a doll. Clearly we're not killing a robot. 
clearly it's something else and it's painful what she's going through. And we're being forced. Deckard is being forced because it's his POV. And for all intents and purposes, he's being forced to see his his handiwork again. You killed this woman the same way you killed the last woman in the back um, as she was running towards you. So you just took out your gun and shot her because that was easiest for you to do. Of course, he's probably terrified and, you know, he's he's fighting for his life as well. But it has echoes of his past and how he just kind of does his job and doesn't really think about, think about it. But it's her death is a foreshadow of Batty's death. She's sitting. He's watching her die. And he's kind of like, wow. And then he gets to watch Batty die. And so then he can reflect on it even more like these aren't just things. They're not, you know, he says replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or of a hazard. And it's interesting. Um, I don't want to go too far with this, but thinking about Pris, they use the term machine in the movie. They're just like any other machine. Why are they calling these things machines? Why? If they're purely genetics, if they're purely just grown, if they're just humans that have been, because there must be something else about replicants, because we live in a world where there are children born from in vitro fertilization, where there are children who are born um, and they, their DNA has been changed. There are children being born now with the DNA of two fathers and the, the DNA of their mother, because both men who are in love and they want the child, they want the child to relate, to have both of them inside of them, you know, in terms of their genetics. Um, Replicants are different from this. Replicants aren't just these eggs that are fertilized and they're like, let's mess with this here and do that there and give them blue eyes because we're already doing that. Replicants are different. There's a difference here, a major difference, such a major difference that they're not seen as people. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not people. It doesn't mean that they're not um, sentient and worthy of autonomy and agency, just like we are. But something's going on with them and with society that they've seen these things. And they're like, they look at them and uh, their brain does something. And they're like, oh, it's not, that thing isn't even real. Like, what are you doing? You know? Um, and, but evidenced in her pain is her humanity. And I think we're being forced to watch this young, beautiful woman who has, was fighting for her life writhe in agony um, because she feels pain. And we're being forced to watch it. And I think that's what her makes her death so horrific. It's her pain. And I think that's part of the brilliance of the film is that it doesn't allow us to shy away from the horror that the, the actual loss that this kind of thing represents, that they can call it retirement all they want to, but we're watching a murder happen, right? I also think that in terms of that machines line, it could be what you're talking about, or it could be that the line between, you know, in vitro gene crossing and manufacturing is narrow enough that they have to use dehumanizing language True. to maintain the illusion that it really is, you know, a separate thing. Because the, the reality is, is, you know, you can have a couple in love that decides to have a child, you know, via fertilization like that. 
or you can create something that exists purely to be had sex with, right? Or, or to go to war for. So I think that's the thing is, is it's they're created not out of, you know, love or the union of people. They're, they're created as a product to be, to be sold or to be put into an application. But the reality is in, in my headcanon, at least, because I think of them as being very non-mechanical and being very much, you know, organically grown somehow, which, you know, that's my personal interpretation of it. That line is so thin that they have to continually otherize them all the time to feel comfortable. And I think that a huge part of Deckard's journey is exactly what you're talking about, which is he goes into this with the benefit or hazard mentality, but he comes out clearly with a very different one. And we see him as each retirement, or I'm not going to even call them that, the deaths, as each death occurs, he is continually more horrified by what he's being forced to do. Because at the end of the day, Pris wasn't there to kill Deckard. Pris would have been much happier had Deckard never shown up. He did show up and she did set a trap for him and she did attack him. But she did that not because she wanted to kill a Blade Runner. She did that because she really wanted Roy to come back from the Tyrell Corporation with the answers that they're seeking to extend their lifespan because she knew that her time was was running near. And that's something that every one of us can relate to. You know, we all have a retirement date. We just don't know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is is an, an integral part of being a human. The difference with her is that hers is coming up so quickly and it's and it's right in the in the flush in the prime of her life as she's about to become like what would be a young adult human, right? She's just coming into her own and she's being cut down. And to do that would be a terrible thing to do. And Deckard has to grapple with that. And we have to grapple with watching it because it is it is really, really horrifying to see her get killed like that. And then also it's important because we know who's coming home. And depending on how you're looking at Roy at this point, which I think for most people is with fear because of what just happened with Tyrell and because he's, you know, so powerful and he's clearly the leader of this group and he's about to come home having just committed murder. And we, and we know, oh my God, Deckard is really in trouble because that door's going to open any moment from the elevator. And then of course it does. And instead of fury, we're greeted with grief, which is also, I think, that's another really important thing that I want to talk about. And I know we're not here to talk about Roy, but we should a little bit because because of how closely related they are. It's important to note that when when he comes back, he's not moved to ferocity first. His gut instinct is to kiss her and to howl in pain. And that's a really deeply human moment. Uh, of course, it comes after the you know, this, he has just killed his creator. He knows that, that this is not going to work. So he's doubly horrified. And then, of course, Roy goes through this wonderful transformation towards the end as the fight goes on where he becomes closer and closer to some sort of elemental human being. And then his death is what tips the scales for Deckard. But mm-hmm. I think uh, I think Pris is – you're absolutely right. She's such a window into the ways in which we grapple with what we call human versus not human. And that's really complicated. Yeah, and I think when you live in a society where society has deemed people or deemed a subset of whatever, well, this is what they are. It's hard to break out of that and say, well, uh, I actually see them as something different. I mean, I can relate the animal rights, all the rights that have been being legislated for animals. If you kill a dog, if you if you if you torture one, if, and you can go to jail for a long time if you do that. Um, 
And these are things that have happened over the course of the last 10 years, where people have legislated and lobbied for rights of animals. In certain countries, some animals have been given sentience, have been declared these animals are sentient, and you cannot, like, they're not, you can't, if you kill them, or if you do things to them, you're going to go to jail, because it's like you've done something to a human. But that took a long time. But we do have, and we've discussed this before on our show, we have Modern day experiences with othering people, whether it's immigrants coming to this country illegally, people using the term illegal alien, and then other people saying, stop using this term, they're people. They're not aliens, they're people, which rightly they are. They are. But if you use the term illegal alien, it's easy to not think about them. It's easy to think, to, th- to turn them into a thing or an, something that th- that thing is in your way that thing is at the door that thing is by the gates that thing those things are at the border those illegal alien things if you don't have to think about their humanity i mean and i don't this is a little controversial i don't mean to open this pandora's box a little bit but i'll just put it this way at some point um before the election of 2020 a politician says you know, it'd be great to have, you know, people go down there with guns and just open fire. Open fire on human beings on the other side of a... That's how much they've been otherized. No humanity is seen. They're just these things on the other side of the border that we're just going to kill because we don't want them there. They're not hurting anyone. They're not killing anyone. They're they're running for their lives. I don't want to get into all the channels that they should be... What. On its face, you have people trying to find a better life. And a politician, their answer was, let's bring some military guys down there and have them open fire. That's the world we're living in. Um, And we are having those conversations still where people think, no, these people, these things shouldn't be coming into our country. These are real conversations. And I think that's why the replicant issue is always so pressing for us because we otherize people all the time. Um, as we see today, there's a whole country or a whole country from another government. The Russian government has otherized the Ukrainians and they don't think of them as people. They think that's our territory and we want it back. So they've, they've lost the humanity. And in that loss, they've decided we can kill them. Um, that's where this leads. And the beautiful thing about if you can say beautiful about Deckard seeing Pris's death is how horrific it was um, and the beauty of her humanity. And then our view as an audience were cut to Roy's tenderness, his kiss, kissing her. Um, and he's got like her makeup on his face and um, just those moments, those really human moments. It's forcing us to see Pris and Roy as something more than just a washing machine or a machine in general. Um, and I think that's why it's so important. That's why replicants um, as a plot device or as a, I don't know, whatever works so well in the Blade Runner universe, because they, they are steps to ask us to ask ourselves bigger questions. How are we doing this to people in our lives? How are we doing this to people in our neighborhood? And we don't know. How are we othering people? How are we othering the homeless? So when people mistreat them, we kind of look the other way. You know, I don't mean to get that deep, but those are the questions that come up for me. I think you're absolutely right. And I agree with you 100% on all points. And I think that it is 
telling that there is no dialogue explaining any of that to us. And that's the problem with Black Lotus, right? We, we, we aren't told by Deckard, even in the voiceover version, how revulsed he is by watching her die at his hand because he realizes that she's a human all of a sudden, right? Or that she had feelings and she wasn't just a washing machine. We aren't, Roy doesn't look at Deckard and go, how could you do this to this replicant that I was in love with? You know, there's no over explanation of this stuff because the second you start to explain something, you are closing doors off all over the place for people to find their own answers to things, right? And those doors closing are fatal to to art. Like that that is how art stops to be relevant. For us, we're forced to wonder why the way something is shot, the fact that it is Deckard's point of view watching this woman, you know, in her death rattles, why that's so effective to us. Like that's something that we can figure out ourselves. And that's something that even the first time we see it, we probably don't even pick up on it. We just, we, we have these feelings from it, but we haven't really intellectualized it. And then we revisit it or we talk about it with friends and we start, we start a podcast. And before you know it, you're having very deep conversations about these things that you couldn't have if everything had been spoon fed to you. And mm-hmm. the, yeah, I use the word ambivalence all the time when I'm talking about this film, because like, that's the purpose of that. Like we should be able to look at it and see things differently depending on where we are in our personal lives, depending on whom we're watching it with, depending on what's going on in the world. And I I know that in, for example, a post-2016 America, like Blade Runner resonates in, in a very, you know, shocking, deep way for me now. And in, in my work, which I, of course, I work with an NGO and we deal with you know a lot of refugee issues and a lot of, you know, migration problems and trying to, you know, provide aid to people who are trapped between different states. We see this all the time, every single day. We see these compounding disasters that are just all over the world happening that people ignore because they're otherized because it's the, you know, for example, there's an enormous famine happening right now in the east of Africa, in the Horn of Africa region. And like, just nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking about it because the war in Ukraine is so fucking terrible. And that is 100% worth talking about. But we have like tens of millions of people. And it also white people. It it does, but it also is war in Europe, and it's a huge deal. And oh, I don't for want sure. to minimize I'm not, any, I'm just any saying of that. That's historically but, when something catastrophic is involving white people, it's always given more importance than something catastrophic yeah. involving people of color. That's just right. the way and, it is. And I think that is. Uh, it, I'm not trying to get too deep into that either, but I think it's a good window into how we, even unconsciously or subconsciously or latently otherize people in our own daily lives because we feel like we don't have the bandwidth to care, you know, at, at its best or at its worst because we're just like ac- actually racist and we're seeing people as other and we don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. All that aside, I think Pris is a valuable character because she opens up these conversations to us in a way that challenges us as an audience in a way that really few other characters in Blade Runner do other than Roy. She really pushes on these buttons for us because she makes us feel duped. She makes us feel tricked. And then she also is very capable and then she's killed and we're left with this sense of, wait a minute, why didn't that feel as good as I expected it to feel? Why was that so disturbing for me? What is that saying about? Th- and then you have the denouement of the film, and you have everything happen at the end. So yes, yeah, so she's more than just her her look, and she's more than just her outfits. She is uh, she's really a vector into deep conversations in in a, the same way that Joy is, in the same way that Mariette and the Resistance movement is, and in the same way that Roy Batty is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we're going to wrap pretty soon. I, I wanted to for people who might not have read Future Noir or might not know some of the production history, her outfit. 
her look has a really cool story behind it. Um, and you can read this in Paul Salmon's book, Future Noir, which you should read. He's a really great friend of ours. The book is the, it's the definitive history of Blade Runner, so you should pick it up. Uh, but basically, the art department threw a Christmas party in 1980 at the end of the year. And in the process of doing this Christmas party, they had all these, you know, gift exchanges and there were presents lying out. And one of the presents was this uh, calendar of these airbrushed, stylized portraits of new wave fashion. And it was sort of sitting out around and Ridley Scott stumbled across it and thought there's some stuff that could happen in here that was really interesting. And Charles Node, who's a costume designer, who's, you know, famously... Uh, worked with him and eventually they, you know, this punk look that defines Pris and many of the background extras came out of that moment. And that's a, a story that Lawrence Paul, uh, the God tier production designer of Blade Runner relates to Paul Salmon in the book. So you should read that if you haven't already, dear listeners. Yeah, she's a really cool character. Yes, yeah, she is. Um, I will say that in closing, I w- as I was thinking about recording this today, um, and this is just kind of a hint about Something that we've already recorded by this time, <laughs> um, but I I was thinking about the world of of 2019, the original Blade Runner film, and when we first meet Pris, she's walking down the street, and it's dirty, and it's actually out in front of the Bradbury Building, which you and I have been in, um, across the street from that theater, which is now reopened, by the way. Um, Ooh, they've refab- the mo- refurbished it. It looks the same on the outside, but I don't the know. Millennium, where- right? Yeah, um, yeah. But I was thinking about her first intro to her and her walking down that street. It's really dirty and grimy. And I was able to see that world again for the first time since the original film. And that was in the Batman. And that world reminds me so much of Blade Runner. And I was reading some reviews say, and everyone's saying that it reminded them of Blade Runner, the texture of Batman, the texture of the city. Um, I've not seen, and I don't know, like with Blade Runner, there are some composite, there is some compositing going on. There's some set extensions happening. Um, and sometimes you can notice it, but sometimes you, most times you don't. Um, but the Batman, you don't know when it's happening. You don't know what you're seeing. Is it a set extension? Is it CG? You, don't, I don't know, except for some maybe some stunts. I don't know what in that movie is CG. It's just so, it looks so practical and gorgeous and lush and full. Um, so I'm excited to hear what our listeners think about our experience and opinion of Batman. And if you want to hear that, there we go. (laughs) You can go to bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support, sign up for $4 a month. Um, We are mostly doing a series right now called sublime noise, which we talk about score scores from movies. But this week or this time around, we've released an, a review on the Batman, which Patrick and I have both seen twice. And I'm sure the conversation was amazing as we haven't recorded. I'm, it. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be, it, I, I, I bet it was so good. Yeah. I, I, I adore that film and I, I can't wait to see it a third time. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to yeah, talk. I about. need to go a third time as well. Yeah. Maybe and we'll see that, it together when you come back to the East coast. Who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens. We're good. We're good. <laughs> thank you everyone for listening and thank you for your support. Thank you for writing in and for, uh, being such a an, an awesome part of this you know Blade Runner fabric that we're all interwoven into. Thanks, guys. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, 
please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.